Welcome to episode 144. Today, we talk to the founders of the Language Friendly School Organization to learn how we can be inclusive of all languages. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Cloud has... At the time of this recording, my school just hosted virtual conferences between students, their families, and teachers. I noticed a student who didn't sign up for the first conference in October when we had it, and now this was the last chance of the year. I went to him and asked if he can book a time with me. He said, my dad is busy and he's the one who speaks English. My mom's English isn't that good. To which I responded in Thai. And he answered, wait, you want to have the conference in Thai? Of course, I'll speak as much Thai as I can. And the things that I can't say well in Thai, would you mind translating it for your mother? The student agreed and we eventually had the meeting. Where the mother would respond in Thai and I would respond as much as possible in Thai as well. With the help of the student. Imagine if I didn't persist with the student. Imagine the lost opportunity to celebrate him with his family. Imagine the emotional distance between the mother and the school because she felt that English was the only sanctioned language during conferences. This is why we need to create a language-friendly school so that all voices can be heard in any language they speak. In this highly engaging and inspiring conversation, you will leave with so many ideas on how to create a language inclusive and friendly school. Now, on to today's podcast. It's my very special honor to invite Dr. Ellen Rose Campbell and Dr. Emmanuel Le Ponchon to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. Honored to be here. <laughs> well, it's always an honor to have people who love language and make space for language. So before we get there, could you give us a context of your work currently? I start? Okay. Um, yeah, sure. I, uh, I am the founder of the, the Ruta Foundation for Intercultural Multilingual Education, which is a, a nonprofit organization. We're based in the Netherlands and started some 10 years ago. And since, and our focus really is to basically help schools, education system to, um, well, basically realize that they are serving uh, culturally and linguistically diverse students. Most students, most education systems are faced, are focused only on basically one culture, one uh, language. And our goal is really to make sure that the education system become inclusive 
and um, we started the language friendly school uh, three years ago together with Manuel. And um, that's what I'm doing right now. Yes, and uh, I am uh, Emmanuel Le Pichon-Vorstmann. I am an assistant professor at the University of Toronto um, in Canada, um, OISI, which is the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education. And I'm also the head of the Centre de Recherche en Education Franco-Ontarienne. Um, uh, my research is focused on uh, multilingual students, particularly K-12 students. Uh, in the realm of the school context, and uh, uh, particularly um, uh, focusing on the inclusion of minority students in education. So uh, you understand how Ellen Rose and I, we met. <laughs> we had the same goals, same objectives, met, make our schools uh, inclusive and through the channel of languages. Yeah, that, as the more years I teach, I'm starting to realize it's really not just about educating students, but about equity for multilingual students, particularly who are like brown, yellow, BIPOC, indigenous. Right. Well, you know, education starts when students feel well, when and when they feel well, they feel recognized, then they will start to be invested. And if they are invested, they can learn whatever they want to learn. So it's all about, you know, uh, feeling uh, that you are accepted, that your identity is also mirrored by um, the school and that you can belong to the school context. So that's a very uh, important aspect of education, of course. So students can bring their full self to the school and not just decompartmentalize their identities. Right. right. And for me, my background is in, is in human rights, actually. So I'm not an uh, educator. I'm also not a linguist. For me, uh, I came into this really through the work working with indigenous uh, peoples in Suriname in uh, South America, where uh, the school were all uh, focused on, uh, on learning basically the colonizer language, Dutch. And, um, and I could see you know, what, the, what the impact was of that, that they were losing their language, their, their knowledge. And that is when I started looking around. Isn't there any? Aren't there any better uh, alternatives? And this is how you know we. Uh, it 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 was completely unexpected uh, uh, to start this organization. Um, but you know, the more I I got to learn about um, with other ways that schools are are trying to deal with this, and um, um, I realized, you know. On the one hand, um, a lot of people don't know that actually children have a right to use their uh, their language, also within schools, and uh, and have a right. It's a recognized uh, right uh, to express their cultural identity, and and this is something that I'm really that I think is really important that schools know about this, that governments know, and that they include this into the policies. And my part was more that a lot of schools and school teachers and parents don't know that being multilingual is an asset and that there is no language through which you cannot learn. You know, lots of people think that their language is not academic, for instance. Well, bullshit, it's not true. You can learn through all languages, uh, whatever. And we, in uh, linguistic, what we say is that a dialect is a language without an army. It's all a question of power, right? 
So that was my part, language as an asset. And Ellen Rose's part was language as a right. So together, we uh, came up with a language-friendly school. <laughs> <laughs> Dialect is an army without, what did you say? Uh, no, uh, a language, a uh, dialect is a language without an army. Yes, that's beautiful. And we that mirrors what you were saying, Dr. Ellen Rose, about uh, the colonizer language in Suriname. And this is the reality for hundreds of millions of children who are being taught in a language that they don't understand. And of course, in the case of indigenous people, when actually your land has been taken over by someone else, and now you are forced to learn in that language and are also forced to believe that what your uh, the knowledge that your people are bringing is inferior and irrelevant in the education system, it's extremely uh, harmful. When we met, I was doing research on multilingualism and uh, Ellen Rose said, well, you think you know what multilingualism is. Let me take you to Suriname. <laughs> and that's how it happened, right, Ellen? So she brought me to Suriname. And indeed, for me, it was a whole eye opener. I discovered a whole new world where you know, languages were living next to each other, ethnicities were living next to each other, and where language in a society was not, I mean, at the individual level considered a problem, but was just a way of life. Multilingualism is a way of life there. And so I came back with my head full of new thoughts and new uh, ideas about it. So we like to say that uh, we, in fact, were inspired by Suriname to uh, get to start the language friendly school. So by the south and not by the north. <laughs> That's a rare occurrence, but it happens, I'm happy that it happened. <laughs> Can you talk to us more about that experience in Suriname, Dr. Ellen Rose? Sure. Well, uh, as I said, uh, the, what what um, what I noticed is is that the, these children uh, uh, were speaking many different languages, none of them Dutch. Um, but also, when when I went to the schools to visit schools with Emmanuel, what we saw is that each school has a different uh, language situation. So in some schools. Oh, like 90% of the kids would speak language X. And, um, and they were all being taught in Dutch. Then at other schools, there were maybe two or three different languages. Uh, and some of, some of the kids do speak uh, Dutch there. And then there were situations where they spoke, you know, 10, 15 different languages. Um, and and then also the teachers, teachers being moved around the schools. Some of them have or learned the, lang the local languages. Some of them already speak some of it. Some of them absolutely not. Um, so that is one thing that we were thinking of, well, you know, whatever we're gonna come up with, it needs to work for all these different contexts. And also what we saw, and that was also really interesting uh, is that in practice, we saw that a lot of teachers were already trying to deal with that situation where we're using translanguaging, but they didn't know, they sort of thought it was uh, uh, um, unlawful to do. So, um, and 
and what when we saw what they were doing and we realized you know this is also reality outside of Suriname that a lot of teachers are trying to figure out a way to deal with the multilingualism but they're insecure about what they're doing and uh, and other teachers may say what what are you doing why are you using these uh, these uh, languages so this is why we thought if we can come up, come up with a concept that would work for all these different uh, schools and that would empower the teachers that are already doing great things, um, that would really um, you know, help see other schools, you know, this is the way forward. Yes, and um, this, was, this is the reason why when a school wants to become a language-friendly school, they have to start with um, assessing their own situation in recognition of this diversity. So that was very important for us. So when a school wants to get into the language friendly school network, they need first to sit down together and assess their language situation. Who is speaking what and why and how, right? And how many languages? And it's usually a very fun process for them, a, a process of celebration. Wow, we didn't know. Oh, you speak that many languages, and the staff too, and the, you know the parents and the kids, and so it's it's the first. So it's really nice because this recognition of diversity starts with a celebration, the assessment of the situation. Instead of seeing languages as problems to solve, all of a sudden they are seen as the richness of the school, you know, the, wow, we are so rich of all of these languages. And then they sit and then they talk to each other. Okay, what are we going to do with it? That's the second step, right? <laughs> maybe you want to step in, Ellen Rose. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's good uh, if, you know, there are listeners who don't know what the language friendly school is. It's basically uh, like a quality label that uh, schools can sign up for, and then they become part of a network of, of language-friendly schools. And uh, at the moment, we have uh, 20 uh, language-friendly schools uh, around the world in five different countries, one in China, <laughs> one in uh, Spain, in Canada, and then uh, uh, most in, in, in the Netherlands. And also, I shouldn't forget, in the Caribbean, Dutch Caribbean, a small little island of Seba. Um, and yeah, what Emmanuel said, they, um, we don't have like a blueprint of what they have to have in place. We invite them to, to look at their situation and then develop their own language-friendly school plan that works for them, that aligns with their goals, with what they have uh, in the house, the expertise they have, and we just encourage them, you know, small steps go a long way. So just get started. And a good starting point is to assess what languages are present. And then they, they and we have developed a roadmap with, uh, with basically ideas that they can implement. And once they are uh, uh, part of the network, they, they have access to a toolkit of language friendly uh, practices. And of course, I mean, we are an open network, but we do have some minimum requirements. Not every school can become a language-friendly school. And uh, the most important one is that you commit in writing that you will not prohibit, punish, 
uh, discourage students from using their, uh, no, well, whatever language. Um, let's start at the school yard. <laughs> Um, because that is even for some schools a big issue where you have the language police and they go out and yet, oh, I hear you speaking this. No, here we speak uh, this language. So that, um, that, is, that is the main uh, requirement. Um, right. and go ahead, and Emmanuel. Yes, I, I think uh, you hear Ellen Rose talking about they constantly, constantly, they have to, which is very important for us. So she was talking previously about the fact that we met lots of amazing teachers, but one of the problems they had is that they felt quite isolated in their innovative and great practices, almost having the feeling that they were doing something controversial when welcoming all of these languages. So that's the reason why we said, okay, we need to network them. Uh, we need to uh, help them to get to go beyond uh, their school to you know, support each other. And that's the idea of the network. But there is a second aspect to become a language friendly school. You need to come with a team. So a team start with two or three, right, Ellen Rose? <laughs> it's not per se the whole school staff because it's hard to convince uh, everybody right away. It's a process, but at least you need to come up with two or three colleagues who want to join um, with this language-friendly school process and work on it. And that's very a very important aspect of, of uh, our network, right, Ellen Rose? To empower yes, and the and the the school leader, the it's essential that the school leader is on board. So before they, uh, that is part of the assessment of the review procedure that we have uh, an, uh, a meeting with the school principal to really see, you know, to what extent they really support this because we have seen and we know from from experience that, you know, if one teacher is and, and the school management isn't really, doesn't really believe in it, it's not sustainable. And for us, that's really crucial that it's not just a one-off thing, uh, like this year we're gonna be language friendly and next year we're gonna focus on math or, uh, it's really what we really want is to change the school culture forever that children are always next generation, even when those teachers who are there now are not there anymore, it will continue and that children will always be welcome with their full identity. Yes, and it's complicated because as you understand, these questions are highly ideological, which means that you cannot just say, okay, now it's implemented, we are good. It's, you need to work on it constantly and constantly. It's almost activism. <laughs> You really need to renew your vows every year. <laughs> so that's extremely important for us. So once they formulate a language plan, they also need to make sure that they implement their goals. So that's something that is also very important in um, um, the, 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 the process of becoming language-friendly school. Make sure that it is implemented. So that can happen at different levels. That can happen at the classroom level, at the school level, but also at higher level, you know, at board level, for instance. What are they doing with these languages and how? And it's amazing. I'm still uh, amazed by the creativity 
of the schools, of the school leaders and of the staff, what they come up with, they're active. We, we, um, when we started two years ago, we never, I think we could say that we never had thought that they could be so imaginative, creative, et cetera. So we kind of leave it to them. They may decide how, how much, as long as they come up with a plan that they really implement. So our role within the network is kind of, you know, to monitor and help them evaluate uh, and, and then network them, right? So yeah, extremely rewarding, I would say. I feel like your foundation needs a yearly annual conference to bring all the schools together. We just had one. <laughs> our first ever our where, first language friendly school conference two weeks ago and it was amazing we had uh, like 10 schools actually presenting their um, their practices and, and sharing including uh, I mean it was an in-person uh, conference in the Netherlands um, but we had some um, 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 presentations uh, online, well, from China, obviously, well, not obviously, but they didn't come. Um, the Spain, the Spanish, our Spanish colleagues were there uh, in the Netherlands, and um, also our Caribbean uh, uh, school was uh, was present. So it was an incredibly rich experience with uh, with some fifty or sixty participants. Uh, and it and that is what is for me so um, yeah that that was one thing that really struck me that when I looked around the room this was we organized it on a Saturday and you could see all these teachers from all over the Netherlands from from different countries who were there on that free day and I realized you know these are you know the most motivated teachers you can get. And also, it's the it was the International School of Breda who organized it. They actually volunteered and offered to host the conference, and they did everything. They organized the catering, they did the facilitation, everything, and um, and that just gave the gave it such power, you know, that it's teachers themselves who are all doing this. There's no external event bureau or anything, and. Um, and, you know, they were, everybody was open. Some of them had just recently started and they were, wow, we just became a language friendly school. So we don't have, we have done a lot yet. But a lot of the schools say that, that they, they themselves feel that they haven't done much, but then they tell to, to talk about their uh, practices. I'm like, oh, wow, that's amazing. You're exactly. doing this. That's really something we are becoming more and more aware of is that teachers and schools are usually very humble. They think that they are doing, that they are not doing well. And uh, what we do with the network, putting them together or giving them the opportunity to present or to give a webinar or et cetera, is helping them to just collect all of the amazing stuff they are doing and giving it, you know, some, some, some uh, theoretical background and then, you know, showing the others what they are doing and then everybody's like wow that's so amazing that's great so that's really something I wasn't aware of that teachers usually you know they, they limit themselves to their classrooms and they 
don't easily kind of say to the other because they don't want to show up. So to the other, oh, you know, I'm doing that. What are you doing? So that's really what we're trying to do. Wow, you are doing an amazing work. It's really groundbreaking. Show it to the world. And, and yeah, that's an amazing experience because they enjoy it and we enjoy it. And uh, another part uh, of the conference that was beautiful is that some of the schools had interviewed their students to ask them, what they liked about the fact of being a language friendly school. And the, I mean, the films were extraordinary. You had, you know, children from, I don't know, four years old to the oldest was meeting maybe 14 years old, explaining to us why it is important to get more social justice and equity in schools. I mean, children explaining to leaders you know, you don't need to redo your old school. You just can, you know, step by step. Start by accepting these languages, believing that they are an asset. That was a really, really strong moment. Being taught by the students was uh, was incredible, at least for me. <laughs> they were also asked how they could make their school more language friendly, and so some of them said, "Well, we could uh, we could learn to to uh, we would like to write more in our own languages." Yeah, that was, uh, and that is something that we are, um, that we want to encourage that, uh, that the schools form like uh, student um, uh, councils that will really help them uh, to, you know, improve and continue their language friendliness. Um, and, and, and that's another important uh, aspect of the language friendly school that it's all about uh, inclusion and participation. So we really encourage the schools to develop their plan together, not just with the whole team, but also with, of course, the students, but also the parents, to include the parents in this process. Because sometimes you can, uh, um, um, you know, there are some parents who, for whom it's really important that their home languages are being developed and, but other parents, like the rest of society, believe, you know, I send my kids to school to learn the dominant language. And um, I don't need you to, uh, to teach them uh, our home language. So they also need to uh, be informed about, you know, the, the many benefits of the, the development of the home language. Right, so in, a, in, a, in an article that we wrote recently, uh, we cited one of the teachers of a school in Amsterdam, which was one of the first, uh, Denise, who said that uh, when they started to implement, um, you know, language-friendly meetings with the parents, etc., um, all of a sudden they saw that uh, parents who would dropped out, who be, who would be dropped out, uh, just came in. Uh, started to uh, appreciate the fact that they could connect with the school and be connected to the education of their children. And, you know, parents are the first educators of their children. We often forget that. We say, okay, come to school, we'll take care of it. But that's not how it works. And it's, in fact, damageable. The other thing I wanted to say, just to regard to what you just said, Elaine Rose, is that that is the, the, the beauty of it, is that when you allow students to be themselves, they will surprise you. It's just like a box you can open and all of a sudden there are tons of ideas coming out of it. So a student who would be, for instance, reluctant to go to a Saturday school to learn their own language, if 
during the week, they are praised for you know speaking and uh, that that language all of a sudden they will say okay i'm gonna show you how you do that because it becomes cool all of a sudden they are cool their languages are cool you know it's it's that's the trick and it's so easy to realize it, you don't need you know it, it's really the magic word come with everything you are teach us what is the perspective of your own family of your own culture of your own language Tell us, um, you know, and our vision is going to be enriched by what, you, by what you have to bring to our classrooms. Speaking of surprises, I was thinking of uh, another example um, where um, the teacher had asked the children to, if they wanted to, they could also uh, do, write their stories. I'm not sure what lesson it was exactly, but they could do it in whatever language, their language of preference, they call it. And she decided to write in Turkish. And she said previously, um, she would only get like two or three lines from this girl in Dutch. But now she had a whole page. And <laughs> to uh, make it easier for the teacher, she also uh, translated it into Dutch, <laughs> line by line. And then she told the parents. So this was this was interesting. She told the father, like, "Hey, uh, I have a whole essay a story from your daughter in, Dur in Turkish." And he was like, "Turkish? She can't write Turkish." And he says, "Well, I don't know if it's all correct, but this is it." And he was actually, she said, he had tears in his eyes. He was so moved. He had no idea. Yes. So it's often a misunderstanding, also. It, uh, in, in teachers that you don't need to learn to write or to read twice. Once you can read, you can just transfer your skills from one language to the other. And the process is much faster than, you know, learn having to learn to read and write, right? So uh, very often these children, they have many hidden skills. And why are these skills hidden? Because we don't ask them. And I think we can recall, uh, Eleanor, when we were in that village in Galibi in Suriname, and the, 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 the teachers didn't know that the children couldn't write in their own language. And so we were in the classroom and all of a sudden, I think Ellen Rose said, can you write something for us in a language that is not Dutch, you know, in, a, in an other language than the school language? Oh, we didn't even say that they could write in Dutch, but in a language, you, the language you want. And all of a sudden we discovered that they were writing in their own uh, uh, home languages, so so-called indigenous languages, or even sometimes in Portuguese, or we saw some English too. And what was impressive too is that all of these notes that they wrote for us were not all oh, the sunshine and the um, uh, the, the flowers are uh, um, uh, etc. No, they were all communicative words. So it was like. It was so nice to see you today. I hope you will come back. Uh, so it was all, that's, that's what language is for. Language is made to connect us to each other, right? Um, and that was very impressive. And the second thing that was very impressive is just what Ellen Rose said. Some of them started to translate for us because they were very conscious of the fact that we couldn't understand their own language. So if we couldn't understand, it did not make sense to us. So all of a sudden, they started to translate in Dutch for us, which was also beautiful and shows what we call in uh, in, in our own jargon, uh, 
first meta-communicative awareness. They are aware of the fact that we needed that in order to understand what they were saying, but also meta-linguistic awareness, which is this consciousness of the language and how it is made and how it works, the grammar, the morphology, etc., syntaxes, how the sentences are built, etc. And so it's exactly what we said before. Once you allow students to come up with you know, everything, all of their resources, all of a sudden you, you kind of open a, a, the door to education. That's really what happened. That's also what one of the teachers said at the conference. Um, uh, she said, um, you know, if you're unsure of where to start, just ask your students. They will tell you, they will guide you and they will ask for more. Once you start with one thing, they will ask for more and they will come up with ideas. I thought that was really beautiful. Right. One of my teachers, for instance, said, you know, after your course, I started to implement such practices in my classroom. And I thought it would take me way more time to realize. But in fact, all of a sudden I discovered not only that it was I, 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 I didn't lose any time by introducing these languages, but the children were much more invested into learning. <laughs> which is beautiful. Maybe another aspect that we, um, that, that is the uh, elephant in the room here is that what you see in language friendly schools is that um, the leadership is distributed among the participants uh, of the community. So it's not only the leaders and the teachers, for instance, but uh, children take the lead, students take the lead, parents take the lead. Um, of course, but uh, it needs to be organized, which is kind of nice. So in some of our schools, for instance, they have organized language ambassadors, right? So these are, you know, recognized as experts in some languages and can welcome any new uh, child coming to the school with that language or the parents when there is a meeting with the parents or etc. So I think that it's um, in language friendly school, uh, schools, the concept of leadership is rethought to be distributed among the community. And has to be because the children in many cases are the experts of the language in the classroom. So who would you look for uh, to lead here? I mean, we as part of an exchange we did, uh, we had uh, another network, a sister network in Austria come visit us. They also have a network of very similar language friendly schools. Um, and we uh, developed a project together. So we are, we are doing exchanges and they visit us, us in, in Amsterdam. And the school in Amsterdam arranged for, uh, and then the school in Spain said, oh, can we join too? And so uh, it was wonderful at the school. And they arranged for us to have school tours by the student. So we had uh, a Spanish speaking students, we had German speaking students, French, well, whatever language that we spoke, they could provide. <laughs> and the kids just love it. They were just, you know, so proud and also really proud of their school. That was also really interesting and that everybody noticed like, wow, these kids are really um, proud of their school. 
Would you tell us some practices of an unfriendly language school? You already talked about one of like punishing students at the playground, but show us more at the school, at the outside playground level, at the classroom level, in the hallway level, in the administration level, and even at the home level. It's funny what you are saying, because what we try to do with the land is uh, not pinpointing what they are doing wrong, but what they are doing well. <laughs> so it's a hard exercise. <laughs> it's actually not hard because, I mean, there is a lot of, of schools where, well, one very language unfriendly practice at the, at the systemic level is the exams that all the kids are forced to do uh, to prove their skills in math, in history, in biology, whatever, in one language only. And they may very well know the, know the content, but they're unable to communicate it in Dutch or English or Spanish or whatever. And um, so uh, that is something that, that, that the, our language friendly schools have to deal with. Some is very, uh, very um, uh, big challenge. Uh, then uh, there is uh, well, Emmanuel can tell that story. That is that is really how we how we um, um, well we met, and then she told me this story, and I was like, well, exactly this is what I mean of what how parents are are discouraged from using their languages within the schools with their own children. Yes, I was on the playground, and the teacher came to me and said. Um, she she was kind of embarrassed I could see that that and she came to me and she said I would like to ask you not to speak your language anymore on the playground with your children and I was like you know it was funny because at the time I was writing an article for one of the <laughs> national professional magazines and I looked at her and I said you know I didn't have much inspiration for that article but now I do <laughs> And so she panicked. So I said, I'd like to know, why? Why are you asking me that? And in fact, it was the direction, the leadership uh, who um, had asked her uh, to ask me that. And the reason was that they didn't want these parents to speak in their own language uh, on the school, uh, school, on the playground, because they had the feeling that they were not mixing, you know, with other parents and that, etc which is typically uh, an assimilative thought. And that is very dangerous because it goes, you know, to all kinds of extreme, uh, you know, policies, et cetera. So I said, you know what? Not only I'm going to continue to speak my language on the playground, but you know what? Also in the classroom, I'll bring my child every morning and speak my language in the classroom. And in fact, what was interesting of that, that story is that uh, I reached out to the other parents who were speaking the other languages and they were very angry and I was very angry too. The angriness I felt was very deep in me, you know, and I could feel it in my whole. It took me a number of weeks to recover. I even went to a jurist, you know, to, jurist to know what I could do and I heard nothing. And that's when that, we, we, we met yeah a couple of months later I think and um, so I, I was and and this this the anger I felt was made me realize well probably these parents feel like me can you imagine what happens when parents are extremely angry at 
the education of their child at the school of their child. And we, it, it never really recovered uh, the relationship with the, with the leadership of that school. So what I wanna say with that is that you don't even realize the damages that you are doing when you do that. It's, it goes very, because children, you know, um, especially young children from four to seven years old, they, they look at their parents, they look at that. And if their parents don't like the school, they know it. And then they won't like the school either. And if they won't like the school, well, what is the next step? You know, I don't need to, so yeah. That is extremely damageable. Uh, I, I wanted to say in terms of evaluation, what you were saying, Ellen so Rose is extremely true. It's so unfair, the fact that you have to express yourself in a particular language, what you could in another language. There is lots of research done at the moment on that level. There are many softwares coming out that would help uh, uh, students and teachers to work with them, but teachers still need and schools still need to understand that this is available, it is not cheating on the other way around, it is just being able to show what you can and how you can do it. And that language is just an extra, you know, it's funny because when you would come to university and wouldn't speak the language of the country, it would be okay. But when you come to school and you don't speak the language of the country, then it's a huge problem. Hey, why? Isn't it a contradiction? Right. <laughs> What made you so angry from when at that time in the playground? I never realized how important that language was for me. And for me, it was French. You can hear it right away. <laughs> I don't need to hide it. <laughs> and um, no, I, I, I never realized because it's the language in which you can, especially with, you know, your own children, um, you can... Um, share your emotions you can share everything that makes you you we are shaped by our languages and cultures right we are shaped by our experiences and especially those we get when we are you know between zero and 18 years old um and 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 so norms habits cultures languages everything. So that's the reason why we, you should try to avoid every negative experience with students when they are, because they will never forget it. Never. It will shape them. What you do with them, shape them. And I realized that was my experience. So I was very lucky. I grew up in France in a very friendly environment. And so I have good memories of my youth. But still, you know, when, when I was on that playground, all of a sudden it was as if I had received, you know, a big, you know, slam in the face. I, <laughs> I, I was hurt. I was hurt. And I didn't realize that uh, it could go so deep, that it could be so aggressive, so violent. I was always, I was lucky to have always had education in my mother tongue, in, uh, in Dutch. Um, but I met an English speaker who, um, and I had, we, we raised a, a child together. And so she was um, uh, uh, learning to read and write in English. And uh, before she, she actually went to school in the Netherlands, she always went to school in the Netherlands. And then when she was six and start, when she actually started to, when they started teaching her to read and write in Dutch, 
the the teacher said, well, you know, like at the first meeting, parent meeting I had, she was like, well, you know, she's obviously not a high achiever. I'm like, <laughs> do you know this already? <laughs> and I said, uh, you know that she's learning uh, English as well, right? And she was like, no. But to me, it was obvious that even if she had known, it wouldn't make any difference. She was treated as a monolingual Dutch-speaking child throughout school. Her The part that she was reading, you know, and um, in English and was just irrelevant to the school. All, the, all they saw is that she didn't have the same vocabulary as a monolingual Dutch child. So obviously she wasn't very bright. And that has really stuck with her. And um, it's only later on, and that is according to all the, all the uh, research that because she was, uh, we were teaching her uh, to read and write, developing her language. And that is of course with English, it's easy in the Netherlands because there's so many resources um, that in when she went to secondary school, she started to pick up and but also because of the experience she had she became very competitive over competitive in my view um, and she is still to this day trying to prove that teacher wrong yeah and you know in her case it it turned out well and that obviously has a lot to do with her parents being highly educated um, but you know so many other children are, are, are treated this way and as Emmanuel said, it hurts as a parent because you know your child and, uh, and you just see how they are being treated and, and um, uh, get all these, these messages that they are not smart enough and how that, that impacts them. And you know, any other child would just give up trying. So I guess don't make a mother who is highly educated and who has access to a peer reviewed article. <laughs> <laughs> don't get them mad because they'll start writing <laughs> and we also start writing to the UN we uh, last year <laughs> yeah. don't start us you're right <laughs> no but seriously um, um, and, well a couple of things uh, happened one is that there was a school there is a school in the Netherlands who actually uh, uh, expelled a Turkish speaking child, a student from school because they refused to sign a regulation that they would only use Dutch at school. So they expelled the child. The, the, the parents went to the court and this court actually agreed with the school. And, um, and this made me realize several things. One, that, uh, that the judges uh, aren't aware of all the, 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 the knowledge that we have about uh, multilingual learning, but also that um, uh, there isn't a clear statement in any of the human rights um, uh, instruments in the declarations or treaties, which say children have a right to speak their mother tongue at school. There is jurisprudence about bilingual education, mother tongue education is still very difficult to get that across, get that recognized. Um, but uh, so last year we took the opportunity when the Netherlands had to report to the 
United Nations Committee uh, Against Racial Discrimination about, uh, you know, how they implement um, that, uh, that treaty. And we submitted a report on this issue specifically, and we, we submitted a lot of uh, examples of how children and parents are being discriminated against based on their uh, racial migrant background um, uh, and punished for speaking their, uh, their mother tongue at school. And we were able to convince the, the, this committee uh, to, to uh, adopt a recommendation to the Netherlands government saying you need to take measures, effective measure, measures to stop uh, the, the discouraging uh, uh, students from using their uh, mother tongue at school. And they gave the Netherlands one year to, to comply and, and answer. Uh, so we're waiting for that. Um, so yeah, don't get us mothers uh, <laughs> mad. No, exactly. So that's why you see that the language-friendly school, in fact, goes far beyond the inclusion of uh, languages and cultures. It's really about the well-being and the blossoming of, you know, each each student's identity. But I would also like to say, each teacher. Uh, leader, because once the students feel better, the teachers feel better, the parents feel better, everybody feels better, right? So it's it's really an education to 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 I would say peace and justice that that reaches everybody <laughs> in the community. Would you uh, each take one part of this answer? What is lost when school adopts a monolingual policy? And what is gained when a school adopts a language-friendly policy? What is gained is, I guess, what Emmanuel just said. You get happy teachers, you get motivated students, and you get involved parents. Uh, and overall, that leads to greater uh, student achievement um, and, and, and well-being. Well, the two go together, I, I, uh, I guess that... Um, and with regard to, to happy teachers, the re reason I say it is that uh, a lot of teachers think that it's a lot of work and that they can't, you know, they're already, they're overburdened and now they have to do this then. And I always recall this, uh, this teacher who said, you know, she wants to thank, she wanted to thank us because we made her life so much easier. We made her work easier. Because what she said before, I used to have this really boring grammatical lesson. And now the students know that every time I'm going to start with a new theme, I'm going to ask them, how is it in your language? And when I come into the classroom, they sit there all prepared. And they cannot wait to tell them, <laughs> tell her what it, what it is in their language. So she said, all of a sudden now, I, mean, I have a really engaged group of students. Everybody participates. Plus, they learn a lot more. They not don't just learn the grammatical lesson of, in this case, Dutch, but they also learn about Russian and Chinese and uh, Turkish, whatever is in the classroom. So that yes. is what definitely what is gained. <laughs> <laughs> And what is lost, when I was thinking about your question, I thought about what uh, Roberto, who is the principal of uh, the Language Friendly School here in Canada said. He said, uh, I went into school with two languages and left with one. That is what is lost, right? 
And, um, and what he's gained, I think that uh, Ellen Rose talked about it very well, but I would say for teachers and leaders, it's to be back in their own role, which is to teach. You know, very often they feel frustrated because they cannot teach anymore. They don't know how to, and they come in this uh, uh, accusation mode. Okay, it's because of the society. It's because of these newcomers. It's because of their languages. It's because of etc. But in fact, it's the contrary. They should, you, you know, welcome uh, all of these uh, uh, this diversity as an asset, as a celebration. And all of a sudden, they are back into their role of teaching and building knowledge, which is the most amazing job ever, I would say. Teaching. I love that you said, go return to the role of teaching and not being a police person. Right. right. Would you? Tell us, I'm going to give you several situations. Here's one scenario. If a person says they come to school here, the purpose is to learn the dominant language. Why would they want to not use that language? So we're going to, for example, let's say parents say, I send my kids to an international school and it's English. I want my students to speak English or the, that's what the teacher says. That's the purpose. What do you say to that? Well, I think it's a misunderstanding again, um, and it comes from somewhere. I mean, for years, we um, uh, we researchers in education said, uh, a long time ago though, but still said, uh, <laughs> uh, you um, if you want to learn a language, you need to focus on that language only, which is something we understood was wrong some 30 years ago. But as you know, the school system to change, it needs to take some time. And so thanks to mainly the work of people like Jim Cummins, uh, Stephen Kershon, and these kind of people who really changed the world and the vision we had on language education and education in general. So it's often a misunderstanding of parents that if they want their child to speak that language optimally, they need to focus only on that language, which is imposing an extremely high, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, um, rule on them. You know, you won't speak that language. But in fact, we know now in education that by switching back and forth between the languages, that's how you are going to foster knowledge. Think about how you learn a language. You always refer to your own in order to build the other one, right? You compare, and by comparing, you even understand better and faster, and uh, you are able. So, of course, there is a frame needed, right? Uh, <clears throat> that's very important. So that's the pedagogical part, I would say. Um, and that's what we are working on with our schools within the language-friendly school. There is a frame. There is a clear framework. Uh, but uh, the core, the core business here is that to be able to learn faster and better, they need the whole resources. It is as if you would say to uh, a carpenter, yes, you can build a, build a table, but only with this tool, you know, not the whole box, only this tool, <laughs> which would limit and make it much longer, right? <clears throat> so that would be my answer. Um, well, I'm thinking of this this teacher who was who's teaching in a in a Dutch language school. So this is where newcomers go, and the purpose is for them only to learn Dutch. 
And she was using the children's home languages. And I was like, well, how do you explain this? That uh, you're allowing them to write in their home language, and but the purpose is to learn Dutch. How do you explain this? And she said, well, I, I actually used to, to do, uh, I used to only tell them that they could only use Dutch. And then she said, I, I, I heard a, a lecture by Jim Cummings and he had an example of, um, of this little girl who said, you know, when I came to school and I was like nine years old and they let me color the whole day. And as if I only thing I can do was coloring. And then this teacher said she, she, she realized and she started to become really ashamed because she said, that's exactly what I was doing. And then she said she adopted this method that he developed of the identity texts and she um, asked them to, to write their own stories of before, uh, that, what their life was like before they came to the Netherlands, what their journey was like and what it is now. And they could do that in any language. And they could also, if they couldn't um, write, they could also draw and they had a choice what they wanted to do. And, uh, and then after they had written it up, they, uh, she, uh, together they would try to translate it and she would find somebody to translate it. And then she would read the stories out loud in Dutch. And she said, the children, they may not understand all of it, but they know it's their story. So they know what the beginning is, what the middle, what the end, and they are all involved. And she said, so that is really the main thing for me, participation, that they are all participating. What, is, what good is it to me that they can write three letters, three words in Dutch, whereas now I have a whole story and I, I get to know them and they, they are proud of their little book. So that I thought was really the best answer. <laughs> Got to give you another scenario. Let's say that, okay, school still, okay, yes, we let, we encourage students to use all languages except when they're in small groups, when there's different languages. And so everyone must speak one language because then no one was left out. What would you say there? It's a question we get a lot about, um, but what if aren't children uh, excluded and aren't they going to form groups and, um, here again, what 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 this what the schools are teaching us is what you need to do is you do need to make um, rules, but make these rules together with your classroom. And um, you know, in we also get well, aren't they going to be talking to, to uh, about each other? Aren't we, aren't they going to be gossiping or gossiping about me? It's also a thing that is is uh, is often mentioned. Um, but what the schools, the language friendly schools have found is if they make these uh, rules together with the uh, children, I mean, you really shouldn't be gossiping in any language. Um, and they will gossip about you in every language. So, uh, but obviously you need, uh, you need to, to teach children how to, how to, how to behave and, and, uh, and interact with each other. And that in what language really doesn't make any difference right. right i totally agree so um teachers forget that students need to be educated right and they gossip and that that's what they do and uh, you know they won't stop because you forbid them to speak their language their own language what you do 
on the other hand, by forbidding to speak their own language, is segregating. You segregate those students who speak a different language and you make them inferior, you know, and, and that's very damageable. So indeed, uh, what uh, Ellen Rose was talking about, these rules, you know, what we call the didactic contract, which is um, what in fact is allowed. You are not allowed to gossip. You are not allowed, I won't gossip. So I've, I've seen that in some, in some classes here in Canada. So they have the contract that they have written by hand together with the students and how they are going to use their voice not too loud, not too, you know, how they are going to work together, how, and it's, it's all about building trust, you know, and whatever the language, be it, you know, um, uh, the, the language of the school, of all other languages, it's all about that community, that sense of community and trust. And if you build that community of trust in your classroom, there won't be any gossiping anymore in any language <laughs> it's not about languages it's about education that's it so you don't need to be afraid of languages i have one last scenario and then one final question this is for parents what because we know we have parents who speak the school language at home purposely and then abandon their own heritage home language with students? What would you tell parents? It's a very delicate question. Um, some parents um, come from very, um, have very hurtful memories in a particular language. And if they don't wanna speak their own language with their children, I don't think you can tell them, you need to respect them. So of course you can tell them what would be best for their child in terms of what you know from the academic background would be that you would speak your own language. But if they decide not to, who are you to tell them? You know, you can inform them. That's extremely important. I agree. But I think that respect should be, um, uh, you know, respect and dialogue. Um, but most of the parents have amazing memories in their own language, are keen to speak their own language with their children. And they just need to uh, understand better uh, to, that their language is important, that their language is an academic language because there is no language in which you cannot teach. I was, I remember I was uh, showing a resource to a family, a uh, um, uh, school resource to a family in Tigrinia. And they were like, oh, but that doesn't even exist in our own country. <laughs> they didn't know they could learn through their own language. So it's all a question of saying, yes, every language is a wonderful language and is a language through which you can learn. So it's important. So I would say the percentage of parents who really don't want to speak their language is extremely small, but need to be respected. They need to be respected like any other parents. But most of the parents, it's just because they don't know. They don't know. They are too insecure. You know, teachers, just like parents, they when you educate children, you always think that you are doing badly, <laughs> that your children are the worst. Why? Only my children are screaming on the street and uh, and and uh, you know bunching against the window. All children do that, 
And all parents have that feeling, I'm the worst ever. So they just need to be reassured. They just, and that's where we come in, right? And with, you know, all the scientific background and academic background. Uh, and it is, of course, it is difficult for, for parents, especially from some, from certain languages that have a very low status. And, uh, uh, you know, in the street, at work, everywhere, they get the message like your language, uh, you need to forget about it. It's not welcome here. So it's really difficult for, for these parents um, to yeah, have the confidence that they should speak uh, the language and continue um, uh, I, I once interviewed uh, a student um, and she said that uh, her father uh, decided not to speak Turkish with her at home. She had a Dutch mother and a Turkish father. And, and she said, um, um, I, I asked her to share a story. Somebody had given me her name and she said, I don't actually understand why you call me because I don't speak Turkish. And I really don't have anything to say about it. But then we started to talk. And, uh, and as we were talking, she was like thinking about it. And like, well, actually, my father never spoke the language with us. And then, um, well, we hung up. And then within an hour, she wrote this whole essay. And we actually, it's published. You can read it. Uh, where she she called her father and like what is this actually what happened and then it came out he said it was my biggest mistake and uh, and she said I realize now that like whereas my cousins did learn uh, Turkish uh, because his her father felt like it's going to be bad for her development of Dutch so better not speak Turkish so she said but what happened in the school I was just like my cousins constantly told that my Dutch wasn't good enough. I constantly had to do all kinds of tests. They even sent me to a speech therapist, even though I always speak Dutch at home and at school. Uh, and so she says, I've always been super insecure about my Dutch knowledge, but, not, but I don't have the benefits of actually speaking the other language, whereas my cousins do. And she says at parties with family, she can only say hello grandma and nothing else when they go to part or, or to a, a, a band, she doesn't really understand the words. So she really felt like, and she never realized it until I talked to her. <laughs> that's, that's internalized racism. And look how much she's lost because of that one act of intention and impact are two different things. The father wanted something for the daughter, but the impact was something else, right? Let's end with a very, very easy question now. It's a short question. Can you each give us this answer? What is one thing teachers can do tomorrow to create a language-friendly classroom in their class? Send an email to Ellen Rose. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the email address is languagefriendlyschool at... Right. Info at languagefriendlyschool.org. Info at languagefriendlyschool.org. Or, you know, watch uh, our, you can go to our YouTube channel um, or um, um, Facebook. We are on Instagram. We're everywhere. And the website also provides, um, um, yeah, there's videos where you can 
There's one video I think I would recommend from our language training school in Canada, where they show, you know, their language ambassadors, their, um, one thing that they did that was also beautiful, uh, invite all the parents and grandparents to write a wish for their parents, for their children in, well, whatever language they wanted to. So they just made these hearts and they put up all these wishes and it's just beautiful to see. And I mean, that is, that costs no extra time. Another thing that teachers can do is ask um, children what languages they speak, put all the languages up on the, on the door in this classroom, we speak these languages. That will change the whole atmosphere in the classroom. Well, I, I'd like to add, if, if I may, that the uh, Language Friendly School is hosted by the Hutu Foundation that uh, Ellen Rose created, and it's a nonprofit organization. So basically, we run it with zero money for two years, <laughs> and there are many, many schools waiting to become language friendly um, who are, you know, want to join the network. And it's hard for us to say yes, because there is no money. So if they want to donate for the language friendly school, please do so. So go to the site of the Hutu Foundation, which is rutufoundation.org and just donate for the language friendly school because we are basically doing it with no money. And if we want to increase and schools want to join, we need help and support. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I sure will be donating. And I think this conversation is, you've just donated so much to us in this hour. I will end like this. In my 150 podcasts, I have never ended this way, but I'll show you how I'm going to end. <laughs> I'm going to wish that you are angry all the time so that you can create <laughs> more foundations and write articles for us. <laughs> Thank you so much. And it was really a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, um, yeah, thank you for your invitation. Thanks so much. I've, I've enjoyed your podcast for a long time, actually. So I'm really happy to be on it now myself. <laughs> Don't act so surprised. You have a, yeah, your podcast is very well known. <laughs> cry. <laughs> Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Here are the things we can do to be a language friendly school. This comes directly from their website. One, we never prohibit or discourage the use of other languages at school. Two, we never punish our students for using their home languages at school. Three, we never prohibit or discourage parents to use their own languages at school. Four, we don't advise parents to use a different language at home with their children. And five, 
we don't ignore the home languages. I hope you can share these ideas and this conversation with your colleagues or a school administrator who might be interested in being a language-friendly school, officially. Let's end linguistic imperialism. One school, one language, one classroom, one student, one family at a time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.